Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Bring it down, I'm BNP Paribas, Chief U.S. Economist and Head of Markets 360 North America. Dan, this Wednesday, we'll hear from the President. We'll hear from Chairman Powell as well. If you kind of have a preview of one, what would you pick, the Chairman or the President? No, definitely, I think on the Fed side, uh, this is about as well-telegraphed a meeting as we can get. So it should be a pretty sleepy, wait-and-see kind of a meeting. So I think all eyes instead are on the President and how uh, he's going to try and pitch uh, these really ambitious plans on everything from uh, infrastructure to taxes uh, to climate. Dan, I love your your backdrop. You look like you're in the Endeavor space capsule on your way to the space station uh, this morning. Dan, I want to talk to you about the idea of we're ratcheting up GDP expectations. Is GDP catching up with the zeitgeist, or are we behind and we're going to have to catch up with a boom economy? No, I think uh, uh, recent forecasts really are catching up. You know, we're calling for near double-digit impact. So double-digit Q2 and then near double-digit Q3, uh, it's going to be a great-looking uh, couple of months. Uh, but as we were just saying earlier, the Fed has pretty much said they're going to look past that. Um, and I think markets should, should understand that as well. Uh, the, the real question is, beyond the summer, after we get this uh, reopening-driven boost, uh, you know, how long is this going to sustain itself? And there's also a question of the inflationary aspects that we see. Tom was talking about how uh, we're seeing copper surge to the highest level since 2011. We're seeing crop prices in the United States soar to the highest in 2013. How can we call this transitory if this seems to have legs, if people seem to be saying that they could see prices continue to rise and at least not fall substantially from here? Yeah, I think uh, that's the big question. Um, and definitely prices are going up. We saw really a strong uh, March uh, inflation print uh, at you know, 0.3% month-on-month for poor. Um, but is this all price increases that are a bit one-off, um, driven by not just the reopening, but all the kind of supply chain uh, uh, sort of issues? You know, we, we are hearing about semiconductor shortages uh, spreading beyond automobiles to all kinds of appliances. You know, is this uh, going to work itself out? Um, or is this actually going to change what I think to be the key thing here, uh, which is expectations? Are people now going to start expecting more uh, higher prices and then perhaps uh, demanding higher wages to compensate? The story outside of the labor market to this morning is in the airline situation, Tom. I just want to bring up some of the airlines right now. Deutsche Lufthansa over in Germany leading nicely. AIG the parent company of British Airways doing nicely as well. This conversation, Tom, this morning about the EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen speaking to the New York Times teeing up US travellers going into well, Europe. Maybe okay. that travel can happen later this summer. She's just picking it up from John Farrell. John, you've been out on this, and I know we talk about Singapore, Hong Kong, and other corridors or bubbles, whatever they call it. John, do you think it's feasible? I mean, you're the only one of us three who's actually travelled. Well, I've got three things to say about this. Matt Miller brought up one of them earlier this morning. Canvas. Ursula von der Leyen actually made this decision for the EU 27-1-2. Can we actually have a system in place, some kind of vaccine passport certificate system in place that every country understands? And three, look at the specific words, Lisa, that the EU Commission leader actually used. She was talking about 
vaccines that were accepted in the EU but also accepted in the United States. Now, reverse engineer that, because yeah. as far as I understand, AstraZeneca is not approved in the US. So if you've had an AstraZeneca vaccine and you live in Europe, can you travel to the US if that's going to be the agreement later this summer? Yeah, is that the issue or is this just an issue to try to prevent the Chinese vaccinations from being applicable to some of these uh, travel guidelines? And then, of course, there's a question from a health perspective, and we're going to be getting that. Daniel, on, just to wrap up with you, one question a lot of people have is, how much can the US accelerate without the rest of the world joining uh, the, the, the feet here, given the fact that we're seeing the acceleration in India and Brazil, some of the fastest growing economies in the world? No, I think the acceleration is going to be broader based. Uh, certainly the U.S. is at the vanguard here, uh, both in terms of vaccination kind of driven reopening hopes uh, uh, and in terms of fiscal spending. Uh, um, but one of our key messages has been uh, that Europe is not far behind in terms of vaccination. Um, they're going to go through, they're going to, they, they are, I believe, working out their supply chain issues on vaccination distribution. Uh, so they're going to see a nice uh, um, uh, a reopening tick. In fact, uh, in our forecasts uh, starting in 2022, uh, we have Europe growing faster than the U.S. Uh, so it's going to be broader based. Uh, yep. um, and uh, yeah, the, I, I think, the again, the question is uh, um, how much, however, is this going to be sustained itself beyond uh, the sharp end of the V-shaped recovery? Um, is Are we going to go back to the same kind of decades-long Japanification trends we've seen in advanced economies uh, prior to the pandemic? Uh, um, or uh, is this really uh, the start of something new? Dan, it's good to catch you up. It's good to see you. Dan on there of BNP Paribas. Richard Haas joins President of the Council on Foreign Relations. My book of the summer last year and still hugely important, if not more so now, The World, A Brief Introduction by the Hardcover. Hopefully you'll hit the head of the smart mouth uh, adolescent when you say shut up and read this. It is extremely important. The first hundred pages is truly classic. Highly, highly recommend Haas's uh, The World. Richard Haas, I love what you people have done as you look back at our history and our concert of power in honor of John Williamson and a more collegial Washington consensus. How do we get from Williamson's Washington consensus to a more rigid concert of power? Well, we could talk about it internationally. This is simply my thinking that current international arrangements are coming up short, Tom. And what we need to think of some ways of working with countries that are ideologically and politically and economically diverse from us, but we still have to work together, whether it's on climate change or mm -hmm. regulating cyberspace or dealing with proliferation, you name it, basically the defining challenges of this era. And again, right now, there's a big gap between where we are in every single one of these domains and where we need to be. I got a monograph in the mail, Richard Haas, The 100 Years of the Council on Foreign Relations. I'm going to read it cover to cover. It's actually really, really interesting. In the arch of 100 years of the Council on Foreign Relations is our politics is every four years. That's not the case in China. How do we do a concert of power when we've got a four-year time frame and President Xi has a many, many decade time frame? Well, fair enough. Each country has its not just its own system, as you say, but we have our own strengths and weaknesses. China's weakness is that it's very hard to challenge orthodoxy when there are mistakes made, such as there was with the one-child policy, such as there's been with environmental policy. It's incredibly hard to correct those mistakes. Right now, China's committed in certain directions. We'll see how it works out. But there's, there's repression at home. Can they be that repressive at home and still introduce new, new ideas? They're, they're pushing out against the world, 
And the question is, can they continue to benefit from economic interaction? At the same time, they're alienating much of the, the world by their more assertive foreign policy. Yes, us, we've got all our known mistakes, our political weaknesses, our political division. And I think there's real questions about whether or how well we can perform over uh, time. But taking a step back, the real question is whether the United States and China can figure out a way to find areas or pockets of cooperation against the backdrop of a competitive relationship that does not actually become conflictual. Although people are saying that the only way that the United States can truly do this is if it gets some sort of group of allies on board with it in terms of how it counters China. Given your experience and your tenure at the State Department, your knowledge of the key people who are at play here, how is Biden doing with respect to unifying the allies? Well, it's going to be tough. One is we've hurt ourselves by not getting involved in regional economic arrangements. That's a, an own goal. That's a major source of potential leverage. But I think in general, the, the instinct, the default option of this president is to work with allies, Japan, South Korea, uh, India. I think we've hurt ourselves with India by the slowness of our response uh, uh, on vaccines. India is more fundamentally somewhat reluctant to align itself uh, against China. The Europeans, as you know, have kind of gone their own way vis-a-vis -vis China with their, with their own economic and financial arrangements. So the, the rhetoric has been better in some ways than the reality of forging a common front against China. Richard, I'm glad that you brought up India because I've been thinking a lot about this. Why hasn't the U.S. gone more aggressively into helping India given the fact that the pace of vaccinations in the U.S. has slowed and that the supply is, is pretty significant versus the population? How much has that set back the United States and what is the push-pull here in terms of why the U.S. hasn't been more aggressive? Look, I've been railing on against this now for, for weeks. This administration, quite honestly, has been more America first, sequential, essentially, in its approach to vaccines than it ought to be. It makes no sense in terms of health because of the variants. It makes no health, obviously, uh, as you pointed out, strategically. How do we bring India closer to us if we're not there for them in a crisis? Just yesterday, belatedly, the United States began to move in that direction. But my guess is the administration both legitimately wants to make sure that Americans are vaccinated and perhaps more questionably has been worried about being attacked from the right over not taking care of Americans before it's helping the rest of the world, even though the fundamental point is when we help the rest of the world, we help ourselves. Ambassador Haas, quietly at the end of your wonderful book, The World, you have a trenchant phrase, war within countries. Boy, does that ring home, whether it's Chad and the death of their presidency, supposedly on the front lines of their war with Islamist extremists, or the war within America as well. How do we get out of our wars within countries? Tom, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think the answer to it will decide a lot of history. Uh, take the United States. We, for 75 years, have been the principal architect and in some ways the general contractor of what organization and order have been in the world. But that's assumed that there was a sufficient degree of consensus in the United States that we could do what we're doing in the world. If that consensus is no longer there, if we don't have the, the bandwidth, the, the resources, the commonality of purpose wow. to play that role in the world, uh, history is going to move in a very different direction. And then something that the CFR has provided great leadership on is, of course, the tensions between Armenia and Turkey and Mr. Biden providing decade-long and multiple president leadership 
to state, I believe the, uh, I don't want to get in trouble here, but state the obvious of 1915. What does President Biden and the Secretary of State signal with this historic decision? Two things. One is that this administration has placed human rights type considerations really high on the agenda, particularly compared to its predecessor. Second of all, it's a real sign just how far relations with Turkey have deteriorated. Yes. And over over decades, we were reluctant to take this step. I was involved in these conversations myself at the State Department and elsewhere. And what essentially now is people are saying, this relationship isn't that valuable with Erdogan. As a result, there's not a lot of downside. But guess what? We've already got the downside. Richard, just to sort of sum up this around the world in 80 days with Richard Haas, there is a question of which hotspot is the one we should be paying attention to the most right now. Originally, it was China, the U.S., and the Biden administration was going to be the key test. That seems to have faded a bit. Is that wrong or is it sort of the focus moved onward to another spot? Look, if you'd asked me that last week, I probably would have said something with Russia and Ukraine. That seems to have come. I still think China and the U.S., though, is strategically the biggest hotspot. There's any number of other places which could be problematic. But the single biggest fault line in the world is the United States and China and possibly over Taiwan. And the real question is, can these two countries, the U.S. and China, continue to finesse the disagreement that they have successfully managed for 40 years? But China seems to be getting impatient. And can we continue to prevent this uh, from becoming a, a front page crisis? I don't know the answer to that. One of the issues at the moment in foreign policy may be the issue. Richard Haas is going to catch up. As always, it's good to hear from you. Council on Foreign Relations, President. What we try to do here at Surveillance is bring you definitive authorities on whatever the topic is at hand. We can do that with Gigi Granville at Johns Hopkins, out of biology at Indiana University, out of chemistry at Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, in New York, and holding court on security and immunology at the Johns Hopkins University. Gigi, thank you so much for joining us. You have done tours of duty in Delhi. You've done tours of duty in India. Take us away from the sanitized media shots to the reality of the horror we're seeing in India. Yes, I, um, I mean, it's really hard to describe and imagine, um, but, you know, India has a lot more capability than I think a lot of people realize. And the fact that, um, that their hospitals are so overwhelmed uh, speaks to just how many cases they have and um, how much of a humanitarian crisis this is turning out to be. Tell us about the roads out of Delhi, the roads out of Mumbai. Certainly in my reading, it is an urban and rural disaster. Outside of the big cities, what does India look like in a horrific pandemic? So it's a lot, there's a lot of rural spots in India um, and it's, uh, you know, and the cities are, are crowded, more crowded than, um, well, I mean, in New York you're used to, but, uh, but most people in the U.S. are not. And with every kind of traffic conveyance um, that, you know, for elephants, donkeys, motorcycles, it's, it's a busy spot. Um, so I think uh, there's a lot of, uh, and the air quality is probably not helping people at all either, because that's always uh, been a problem in rural and in the, in the city area. So um, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not good. And so it's really fantastic that the U.S. is offering to help. Hopefully that will get other countries to contribute some humanitarian aid as well. The difference in the conversation 
conversation that we're having around India and the rest of the world, including US and Europe this morning, could not be starker. We're talking about a humanitarian crisis in India, and we're talking about what travel might look like for people who want to go on vacation later this summer between Europe and the United States. Doctor, forgive me for having that conversation with you now to follow on from this one. What on earth does travel look like this summer? I think um, if you're vaccinated, I think that you can be very confident that um, that you are are protected. But it's best to not try to try to not take your vaccine out for a spin. I mean, it would be really great to not have to to use it to get infected. And so um, I think you know if you can if you can manage to avoid the kind of crowds and exposures to people who may be infected, that would be the best idea. Um, you know, I think it's going to be different for every family uh, for what they what they do. But um, but, you know, get vaccinated first and allow yourself time to build up immunity. Doctor, this interview with The New York Times for the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen got my attention for one reason. It was this line here, because one thing is clear. All 27 member states will accept unconditionally all those who are vaccinated with vaccines that are approved by the EMA. Doctor, there are certain vaccines that have been approved and certain vaccines that have not been approved. And I just wonder, are we going to have some kind of hierarchy of vaccines pretty much well established in the next couple of months? Yes, um, that's inevitable when you have multiple products. Um, but I think, uh, you know, for, for U.S. Uh, citizens, I think it's or U.S. people who are getting vaccinated in the U.S., um, it's uh, going to be less of, a, of an issue internationally because uh, the, two, the two vaccines that most people are getting, and now with the Johnson & Johnson, they, they will be acceptable. Dr. Gronville, forgive me for being a bit... Dr. Doom here, but is this an epidemiological nightmare setting up that we have a certain level of vaccinations that's good, but not great, not critical mass around the world, and people are starting to travel internationally at a time when you've got pockets of just burgeoning virus, basically asking for mutations from more variants and possibly even vaccine-resistant strains? I mean, how much of an issue does this become as we enter the traveling season? Well, I mean, given how bad things have been over the last year, I'm not convinced that a lot of people had stopped traveling or stopped doing the things that they were supposed to be doing. So um, I, I, um, um, I guess I'm like... I've, I've been not, I'm, my optimism is rooted in, in the fact that I think people have uh, not been following all the things that people have been telling them to do anyway. But, I mean, there's nothing magical about any of these variants. You need to, um, we know how to stop, your, to stop getting infected. You need to have a mask. You need to have good air quality. Try and do social distancing. That is all, uh, the vaccines are, are an additional wonderful tool that will protect you. But um, we just, you know, we need to, to keep with all of the messages and travel um, is you know I think it's it's something people have been doing and uh, hopefully people can uh, do it safely and we can have more engineered controls so that um, you know air quality can be better and reduce transmission. That said do you think that there should be certain travel bans in place or that it's advisable for certain countries to say well travelers from India and Brazil are, are no-goes for right now or, or things like that? I think uh, vaccination campaigns should be ramped up even more than they are now. Um, but because you're right, um, every every time somebody is infected, it's an opportunity for a variant to emerge. And thankfully, all of the variants are are covered right now by the vaccination. So um, we just need to keep boosting that up and borrow some trouble later when we might have to have a booster shot. Doctor, thank you. It's good to catch up. Come back soon. Dr. Gigi Gronville there, Johns Hopkins Center for the Health Security Senior. Scholar.
You do the data check and I'll disrupt it. Come on. I'll okay, I'll do the data check. Yields are up. The real yield Stable. negative 0. 0.75. Transitory. Get out Please. of cash. Transitory. <laughs> Thank you. Euro. No one cares. Okay, no one like cares. Worked, there we go. There's like your that. data check on radio and TV this <laughs> morning. Not very no effective, one, is it? All we you know? care about is getting to Troy Gajewski. We've got a lot to talk about, including John and Lisa are riveted by Gajewski's Bitcoin call. He is with Skybridge and their co-chief investment officer. Troy, the hedge funds are addicted to big technology. We've seen that through every cycle. I'm reading that hedge funds are doing better. What is the linkage of alternative investments to four or five big technology names? Yeah, you know, it's actually interesting you bring that up, Tom, because there has been rotation, particularly back into Facebook and Amazon, less so Apple. Uh, many hedge funds went long growth coming out of the pandemic and then focused and switched their focus to cyclical recovery. Um, and now you see that moving back, given that valuations have come down as much as they have. So certainly the, the dominance of the big five names will be more important the next three months than they were the last four. But if you drill down to a subsector within technology that we, we find very fascinating, we look through the holdings of our underlying managers, we find that semiconductor equipment right now is particularly compelling because valuations or semiconductor equipment fabrication um, because valuations are very reasonable, and those are both cyclical recovery stories and secular growth stories. And plus, there's a play on the continued nationalization or divergence of the economy between the U.S. and uh, and China. Because if you look at what happened to Intel, which lost its lead for uh, a manufacturing of very thin films and 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 very um, high high potency processors, yeah. we can't allow that to happen in semiconductor fabrication equipment. So when we drill down into tech, we think that's a pretty compelling space that hedge funds are starting to rotate into right now. Troy, I'm doing my best Tom Keen impression today. And usually when I get the first question to a guest, he totally ignores it and starts with something else with no follow-on. Right. So I'm going to do that right now. Bitcoin. Let's talk about Bitcoin. Last time we spoke, you'd mm -hmm. allowed that to grow into 13% of yes. your holdings of your portfolio. Can you walk me through where you are now and what's driving things for you? Yeah, so at the peak coming into this month, um, it was actually a little over 14%. So that's dropped back down to 13 and change, given the, the obviously uh, correction we're going through right now. Um, but, you know, as we spoke about last time, really, there's three keys to our thesis. The first is, you know, hyper, 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 hyper loose monetary policy. Hyper loose monetary policy is what we did coming out of the crisis. Now we have five hypers in front of that. And M2 growth has been growing around 18% in the U.S. so far this year. You know, the Fed will come up with a, out with updated data on Tuesday to see how fast it grew in, in March. But given the continued expansion of their balance sheet, we don't see that going below nominal GDP anytime soon. Obviously, the desire for every central bank to continue to uh, debase their currency in budget deficits as far as the eye can see. So that's the, the macro case. It's hard to imagine a better macro environment for an alternative to fiat currencies. And then if you look at the micro case, and you saw this this morning with J.P. Morgan's announcement several weeks ago with uh, Morgan Stanley's announcement, and obviously some of the institutional interest that started really in Q4, you know, we're going through a very similar adoption story to what we did with gold from really 06 to 2013, where the world went from, you know, basically no gold to one to two to maybe 3% gold over time. And that, that's very different this cycle than the last two. Um, we expect that to continue. And then thirdly, you know, you have the natural dynamics of the halving cycle, right? And I think Mike talks about this well. Um, but when you cut new supply in half, if you just keep demand constant, prices are going higher. 
But when you cut new supply in half and demand increases substantially, obviously prices are going meaningfully higher. And so, you know, we still think we're in the middle innings of this bull market for Bitcoin. Shocked if it wasn't meaningfully higher over the next three, six, nine months. Um, So we continue to maintain the position size where it is. That's what I wanted to talk to you about, though, Troy, maintaining Mm -hmm. the position size. Just the perspective of PM right now, how concentrated do you want that bet to be? within the wider portfolio, your tolerance levels around the volatility. How do you make those decisions? Yeah. So, so look, I mean, you have to look at near-term correlation behavior, longer-term correlation behavior. Uh, it's very important to juxtapose it against other assets in your portfolio. And so, for instance, if you had a 90% of your portfolio in go-go growth, right, you know, high beta, mid-cap, small-cap tech names, it might make less sense to have a 13, 14% position in Bitcoin. But when the majority of your portfolio, like us, is tied to the real economy, tied to distressed credit, structured credit, more market neutral, multi-strategy or equity exposures, uh, convertible bond arbitrage, which by definition is a multi uh, or, or a market neutral strategy, you know, having a 13, 14% position in Bitcoin, we think is appropriate at this stage of the cycle, because that will uh, slightly elevate our volatility. We expect volatility in the range of 8 to 12% this year versus uh, 4 to 8, which is our long-term target. Yeah. But we think that's one of the unique areas where you're getting paid for that volatility, right? If you think of the NASDAQ right now, could the NASDAQ go up another 10 to 15% this year? Yes, it could, but you're going to experience more volatility than he certainly had, or two-way volatility, I should say, than the second quarter of last year, for instance, um, in Bitcoin. Troy, you seem to be freezing up a little bit. I I do want to get, perhaps we'll get you uh, back. I think it's fair to say he's gone, Lisa. We've lost him. I did want to say. With some technical issues there. well. We'll get Troy back on another time. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.